Glad to be here with you guys. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, be able to preach. Um, I'm excited about today. Uh, maybe a little more than normal, which is probably indicative of the text that we're covering as well. Um, Matt did say last week that he was jealous that I get this passage, <laughs> so um, I get to balance it out a little bit. Um, just again, for those of you that came in since our announcements, uh, Matt and our other uh, team is in Haiti, so they're not here today. We're only missing four, but uh, in a church our size, it, it feels like a, especially when we're missing Brian, because he's, he's our volume. <laughs> so, um, and thank you. I want to thank you uh, again uh, separately uh, on behalf of Jess and myself uh, for giving us time, me time off of uh, work um, to be able to be with my family and to uh, be able to help take care of them, even though there's not much that I do. Um, I don't know. <laughs> You dads have let that secret out yet or not, but um, it's true. So with that, um, let's go ahead and begin today. We'll jump into our text together. Uh, we'll be in First Timothy chapter 1. Should be wrapping up technically, hopefully, today, the uh, first chapter. It's kind of two and a half sermons, and I'm at seven pages, which is about three more than I average. Um, so you may get one sermon. Well, you get one either way. Um, it just may be half as long. Um, so... With that, if you guys have your Bibles, uh, let, let's jump into there. <clears throat> we um, began 1 Timothy with the idea of leading the fight. Uh, it comes from even this very passage, as we are told by Paul, to fight the good fight of the faith. Um, on other translations, it would be to fight the noble faith. Uh, fight the uh, fight, <laughs> fight the noble fight. Uh, fight the fight that's, that's worth something. Um, that's kind of where we came at this, uh, this book. But the other thing that we wanted to uh, make sure that we emphasize in here, because Paul spends a, a great amount of time in his chapters in here talking about leadership. What does leadership in the church look like? And in our overview sermon, we talked a lot about what proper leadership should look like, about what uh, Paul has for us just in First Timothy, let alone if you were to check out his other epistles, particularly his second letter to Timothy, as he closes out his own life. We see lots and lots of instruction from Paul about leadership. But what's interesting is if we're going to talk about the fight, somebody has to lead the fight, particularly if we're dealing with a group of people. Now, if it's one-on-one, then you lead yourself. Uh, but that's, that's not a battle. That's a little tiny fight. We're talking about the war of spiritual warfare, and leading people is a, is a must. As this is no longer just a one-on-one type thing. And so last week we actually jumped into the text uh, and started working through each verse, and we talked a lot about legalism. What is legalism? And this week we're going to be talking about the glorious gospel of grace. So as we begin today, um, let's keep those things in mind. Let's pray together, and then uh, we'll begin. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for what you've done here. Uh, Father, in this group of people that we call Renovation Church, we're excited about what you've done. Uh, Father, I'd ask that today as we investigate your word together, that you would be the one guiding the conversation. Father, that we listen to what your word has to say. Father, no matter what it means for us, we know that your words are true. We know that we can trust you. We know that these are your very words from your very breath. And Father, that these words are breathed out by you. And they're useful for teaching, they're useful for 
correction, rebuke, and Father, training in righteousness. And Father, I think for today, most of us need lots of training in righteousness. But for others here, we're going to need the rebuke and correction. But Father, we ultimately know that we can love your word because your word became flesh and came and died for us. Lord, we love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. So what is the gospel? What is the glorious gospel of grace? Where does Paul deem it necessary to go, having just combated all these false teachers and setting up a very uh, strong and a very sincere argument against false teaching and legalism? One that you may be familiar, a definition of the gospel would be the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who turn and trust in him will be reconciled to God forever. That's a very robust definition of the gospel. And what's interesting is if you just take that definition among the other ones that we might give, that all bear the same markers. And we find that the good news of the Christian gospel is that God has the power to transform lives. I mean, that, that's what the good news, gospel, good news of the Christians is that God has the power to transform lives. Our DNA groups that are going through that right now are all about discovering that. How do we change? We only change with the gospel. You see, missionary accounts around the world, they abound with evidences of God's great redemptive work. History abounds with it as well. Some names for you to Wikipedia later if you want to. Uh, Billy Sunday, if you might be familiar with him, he is from the early years of baseball in America. He was a hard-drinking Chicago professional baseball player, uh, and he was walking around town one day with his baseball buddies, saw a preacher on the street, decided they were going to make fun of him. All of a sudden, the words of God hit him in the heart, and he became one of our greatest American evangelists. Um, Martin Luther, former Roman Catholic monk. John Newton, a former slave trader. Charles Colson, a White House aide to Richard Nixon. Frank Morrison and C.S. Lewis, known major skeptics. All these people have seen transforming work of God in their lives simply because of the gospel. From all different walks of life, different religions, different philosophies. And I, even in my own ministry, I've seen all kinds of people give their lives to Christ. Most of them youth. Even, but even since we've been at renovation, there are evidences even among you of people that have given their lives to Christ because of the power of the gospel. But the Bible would give it its own list. It would tell of the maniac at Gadara, the despised tax collector and traitor to his people. You might know him by the name of Matthew. Blind Bartimaeus and his friend. The adulterous Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus, the Roman centurion, Cornelius, the Ethiopian eunuch, even the Philippian jailer. But none of the people that the Bible gives an example of the, of the saving, transforming power of the gospel of grace is, is greater than Saul of Tarsus. We heard about his exploits earlier today as we read from Acts chapter 9. But if you look in Acts chapter 9, 22, 26, Galatians chapter 1 and 2, Philippians 3, and then here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we all see the aspects of his conversion. Now, this is a guy who stood idly by and held the coats for the people who were throwing rocks at Stephen. And he approved of what was going on. Yet the transformation for him on the road to Damascus was the greatest that we would probably see in all of Scripture. 
What's cool is that Paul never lost the wonder that God could and did redeem someone like him. He views himself as the supreme example of God's saving grace, and we see that very, very clearly today in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And so as we move on into his argument, we need to understand again, like we talked about last week, I'm going to try to bring some of you into where we are. Uh, We talked about legalism, the danger of false teaching and using the law to justify rather than using the work of Christ to justify. The false teachers that are uh, here at Ephesus are taking the law of God and saying that if you do not meet this, if you do not do this, then you are no longer saved. That is anti-gospel. And Matt made it very clear last week that in our church, our modern church, if we want to apply these words, it's going to be hard to necessarily see false teachers come in and just start proclaiming things that they want to. Uh, The American church is not designed that way, at least in its local forms. Um, And if Matt or myself, being the primary teachers, are doing this, um, we're probably going to call each other out on it before it ever gets in front of you. And so that kind of thing we're seemingly safe, at least in these walls, from. But then again, it's also really easy to kind of put our finger on some of the false teaching that happens outside these walls. A lot of those are are pretty easy. And in our home gatherings this past week, I wanted to try to avoid the easy ones. Because I think the the biggest danger uh, he talked about last week even is that we can be the greatest false teachers to ourselves. And so what is your self-talk? What, what are you talking to yourself about when no one else is, when you're not doing anything? <coughs> what kind of things are you saying about God to yourself? Are they true things? Or are they mostly true things? Because mostly true is not true. And we find very quickly that we can be the greatest source of false teaching in our lives. And this is why we need the church. This is why we need the scriptures. This is why we need each other to help us see where we are preaching a false gospel to ourselves. (coughs) What's dangerous about false teaching with ourselves is that false teachers follow a pattern. The first thing that they do is confuse That's not good if we're the ones confusing ourselves. If a false teacher's first uh, action is going to be to confuse, then you're not going to realize when you're confused. It's incredibly insidious. The second thing is that they are then captivated. False teachers first confuse and then captivate. And then finally, they damn unwary souls to hell. You see the language that Paul uses talking about how some people have wandered It happens that easily. How are you being careful to not teach false things to yourself? He said the remedy for that, his last point last week, was to set a straight course for the gospel. So let's do that, all right? First thing I want you guys to see today is God's law exposes sinners. God's law exposes sinners. All right, let's uh, pick up in our text in verse 8. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, 
and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There's a lot here, all right? We're going to move pretty quickly. There are some sub-points that I think will help you identify what's going on in the text. So, yes, God's law exposes sinners in a very holistic way because he doesn't just expose sin. He exposes people who are practicing that. So the smaller thing that I want you to see is that God's law exposes sin. Verses 8 and 11 make it very clear that this is what its primary purpose is. And it would be easy to have a natural inference from verse 7 that if false teachers were primarily teaching the law, well, then clearly the law is bad. It's kind of like a guilt by association type thing. But Paul quickly makes clear that that's not the case. Creation is good, chapter 4, verse 4. And the law is good, he says explicitly in chapter 1, verse 8. But the key point with the law is its usage. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The psalmist David would say that the law is perfect. The law is good. I meditated on it day and night. It is what I need. He's using it lawfully. The danger with the false teachers, how were they using it? Well, they were teaching it and instructing Christians. We say, shouldn't you do that? Yes. However, rather than building Christians up by showing them how the law rightly interpreted corresponds to Jesus' two great commandments to love God and to love neighbors, it was instead being used to gain knowledge and speculate rather than apply to their lives. It was meaningless talk rather than God's gracious means of transformation. See, the problem is is the law ultimately points to God, the giver of the law. And Christ and and the gospel sum up the entirety of the law in two commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two things, the whole of the law find their foundation. So if we skip the foundation and we just talk about the house, are we using it rightly? No. The entire point of the law is those two things. Yet the false teachers were talking about gaining knowledge and speculating. It was meaningless talk, Paul says. So what does the law used lawfully look like? How does God's law expose sin? I think the law does three primary things. If you want to write these down, it would probably be valuable. The first thing is that the law is given to convict unbelievers of sin and in this way lead the sinner to Christ. That is the law's primary purpose. I'd say the second one is that it's given to restrain evil within society. That's something that Paul does talk about frequently, particularly in Romans. It's not really addressed here. That's not necessarily what the false teachers are doing wrong with it, though. The third thing is that it's given to educate and teach believers. These are ones that are already saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to shape lives that are pleasing to God. Now, that's not the primary thrust of what he's going to talk about, but it is fundamental to the rest of the book. If we don't understand the law rightly and how it is to convict unbelievers of sin and then lead that sinner to Christ, then we have no business using the law as a believer. As a believer, we use the law to understand how God would have us live rightly and so that we can be uh, living lives that are pleasing to God. So God's law exposes sin. The second thing is that the law reveals the depth of sin. In verse 9 and 10 specifically, we see the depth of sin. It reveals what is sick. The law reveals what's sick 
decaying and dying because ultimately he uses the law and compares it to sound doctrine. Now that word for sound there is literally what we would get hygiene from, so it's a healthy type of thing. So what is sound doctrine is what is healthy, what is growing, what is life-giving. The law, by being what is the comparison point of health, shows what is sick, decaying, dying. It's like going to the doctor. The doctor has an understanding of what health would look like. And so when you go to the doctor for a checkup, they will show you what is not healthy. We need to understand that what is contrary to sound doctrine is not just wrong. What is contrary to sound doctrine is not just a wrong thing to believe. It's deadly. And I made that clear last week when we're talking about the danger of where false teaching leads. To believe something untrue about God is deadly. We need to understand the danger that comes about that. He makes it very clear in verse 6, as we saw last week, swerving from these, these sound doctrines, people have wandered away. We see it incredibly explicitly to, to Ephesus, which is a port city, when he talks about in verse 19 that people have made shipwreck of their faith. These analogies that Paul used seem antiquated to us when we think about shipwrecks. I mean, now I guess it would probably be airplane crashes, and we've had some of those lately. I'm sorry. I said something on Tuesday. I shouldn't have that jokingly. It was poorly timed, and Sarah was not happy with me. Um, it involved the Bermuda Triangle in Cuba. Uh, <laughs> but for us, it seems like it's an antiquated thing to think of what a shipwreck is. This is Ephesus, a port city. And without a port, you don't have goods coming in unless you wait forever on the trade routes. And so for them to have ships coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, to hear about somebody making shipwreck is a terrifying thing. You have lighthouses for the sole purpose of showing you where danger lies. But someone who is in a shipwreck loses everything. Someone who shipwrecks their faith, think about it, they are traveling where they should not be traveling. It's not safe to be where they are. And they dash themselves upon the rocks, upon the ice, upon the waves. And everything that they are, their hopes, their dreams, their future, their fears... Everything that they own, material goods or otherwise, any relationships that they have are done. It's over. Everything falls apart. It sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And like the Titanic, 70 years later, we finally find it. And there's nothing left remaining except a steel hull. That's what shipwreck looks like. And so those who do not confine themselves to sound or healthy doctrine make shipwreck of their faith. We need to understand that the law is morally right and good and it shows us the danger. But the law showing the danger is not enough on its own. It's not good news, in fact. The law forces man to recognize the bad news that all are guilty of violating God's standards. And so it thus condemns everyone and sentences them to hell. Romans 3, 19-20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we see the depth of sin. But we also see that the law reveals the breadth of sin in 9 and 10. 
The list of sins exposed by God's law is not limited. It is completely comprehensive and covers the full range of sin. Understand that there's nothing that lies outside of that. Because often we try to take our sin and put it just outside of God's law as if it's somewhat right and we can get away with it. God's law exposes every and all sins. In 9 and 10, if you look back at our text, it kind of gives a little list. It says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. That's a pair right there. For the ungodly and sinners, another pair. For the unholy and profane, a third pair. And then he lists uh, some other ones separately. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, verse 10, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. And then finally, to kind of just cap it all off, in case you were wondering if yours made it through the cut, whatever else is contrary. It's kind of those people who pray for forgiveness and say, God, forgive me for sin. And we don't want to name it. We just try to give the blanket, forgive this. He covers it all. Whatever else. Anything. A similar list that we see, in case you're wondering if this is the only one and that this is the only time that these things are wrong. Seen in Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 5. Even again, he gives a second list to Timothy and in the next letter that he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I find something interesting. When you're looking at the false teachers, these are uh, rabbinic um, rabbis or Judaism uh, that are, are taking the law and, and using the law as the Pharisees would use the law. But what are they doing it for again? They're doing it for knowledge, and they're doing it to just muse, have conversations, speculate about what this may mean. You'll find no such list of vices in anything written down in rabbinic Judaism. And what's interesting is that they're trying to apply the law, yet you never see them condemn sin. The end goal of legalism is not holiness. We discovered last week that in verse 5, the aim is what? Holiness. But just to kind of go through this list specifically, he says the lawless. That would describe those with no commitment to any law or standard. And what does that lead to in that first pair of rebelliousness? Then he goes on to be ungodly. Those who are rebellious become ungodly, and it's to be without regard for anything sacred and such people are sinners the second pair and an unholy person is indifferent to what is right and indifference leads him to be what profane you think back to just our last series well maybe two series ago now uh the pentateuch series what were we talking about in leviticus and in numbers what's the structure that god gave for those things that are sacred and holy versus those things that are common versus those things that are unclean and profane The law was made for just such disobedient, impure, and irreverent people. If they would heed it, it would show them their sin and their need of salvation. I think most of us see our sin. My concern as a pastor and as even a father and a husband is I wonder how many of us see the need to be saved from it. I think most of us see sin in our lives. And I understand that the, the rest of this section is not going to make me incredibly popular. I've not been excited about this part all week. Most of us see our need, or, or at least our see our sin. But can you see your need to be saved from it? 
Do you understand that it is the rocks upon which you will make shipwreck? He goes on then out of the couplets and says, those who curse, strike, and kill their fathers or mothers. I'm embellishing there a little bit because later in Exodus, he moves out of just honoring mothers and fathers to cursing and striking and lumps that in with killing them. That's the fifth commandment. Murderers, the sixth commandment. Immorality and homosexuality, the seventh commandment. Understand here, those of you using the NIV, that it dilutes the word homosexuality by using pervert. Don't dilute scripture. That makes for confusion, which captivates. And then what finally damns people. We have to be very careful of the words we use. Understand, at least in the scope of this, that this means anything outside the marriage bed of a man and a woman. And it spans the entire gap from celibate homosexual relationships all the way to pederasty. And it even goes to the other side of celibate cohabitation all the way to rape. There's only one natural function and one proper context for sex. Kidnapping is the eighth commandment or stealing. Liars and perjurers, the ninth commandment. And finally, again, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine is deadly. It's not just wrong, it's deadly. And what's significant here in this list is not necessarily the severity of any individual sin. Paul blows that out of the water in just a couple of verses here. It's not the severity of any specific individual sin, but that they all lump us into the same category. We all, in one way or another, become lawbreakers and rebels before God. That's the ultimate purpose of, of this list. That's the ultimate purpose of the Ten Commandments, which is just the, the touchstone for the entire law. It takes us back to what's the primary purpose of the law, to convict unbelievers of sin. And that's what we see in this list. We all become lawbreakers and rebels before God. And so some application, I think, coming out of this would be that we need to understand that each generation has its blind spots when it comes to recognizing what is sinful. I think for, for me, as I'm reading uh, the historical books that I have, it's hard for me to imagine how the Puritans, people like Jonathan Edwards and Wesley, people in that time period could abide and be even engaged in slavery and not see immediately from verse 10 that their actions were wrong. I, I just don't understand how they could miss that. But I think in our day, many of us might immediately recognize the practice of homosexuality as wrong and then so begin to rationalize or justify various aspects of it. Uh, or on the other hand, we may just take a hard line on homosexuality, but yet be routinely involved in work practices which amount to lies and deception. We need to understand that the, the point is not necessarily the severity of each sin. Do they have different levels? Sure. Is that the goal of the law? No. It's simply to convict of wrongdoing and show us our sin. I think about what would happen if I were to hire an electrician, thinking about what Anthony does for, the, for a living. I don't know much, other than some creepy videos that I watched on his Facebook about electricity <laughs> that terrified me of owning a home, um, which is impending, uh, so my doom is as well. Uh, I, I think about that, and if I were to bring him in to do something, how would I know that he did his job right? other than the light turns on? I mean, how would I know that he patched everything up, used, used proper equipment, used proper materials? 
how did I know that he not only did his job right, but did it honorably? Didn't, you know, take any shortcuts. I won't. The light will turn on and my house will burn down. One of the two things would, like, show me the extreme. But other than that, I don't know. What things can you get away with in your job that other people wouldn't know that might amount to one of these other things? How do we need to be careful to not... Uh, again, I don't want to. I don't want us to shy away from calling sin sin and calling it out, even in in our body. But let's be careful to not make anyone more severe than another. That's not the purpose of a law. The law is to show us that we are lawbreakers and rebels. You see, Paul's list is designed to show how God's word exposes every sort of sin, and we need to pray that we would be given eyes to see what is pleasing to the Lord and hearts that are willing to submit to Him. And here's the kicker, in repentance and in faith. You see, the law's job is to expose. But we have to respond to it. And we will respond to God's word. We respond to the law in one of two ways every time. You are responding to God's word right now in one of two ways. You're either being softened and shown your sin, and he will lead you to repentance. Or you are hardening your heart against me, and thereby the word and Jesus as his word exposes sin in your life. How do I know that? Because I fought it all week. I had to fight the hardening of my heart when I was preparing this text. God exposed sin in my life this week that is deep-rooted. I had to repent of that. But hearts that are willing to submit in repentance and faith will use the law as it's supposed to be used. The final thing in this, the law reveals the height then of Christian behavior. We've seen the depth and the breadth of sin, but now it reveals the height of Christian behavior. Verse 11. Verse 11 just serves to bring the point home. He could have stopped at verse 10. It would have made sense. It would have been even probably relatively complete. He could have just said anything else that is contrary to to sound doctrine. You can leave it there. But he indicates that God's good law equates to sound or healthy doctrine, which in turn conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The law is gospel-powered and motivated. He doesn't just say, this is the point of the law. You need to be healthy in your understanding of the law. He says, in fact, the law is not only there to help you be healthy, but it is gospel-powered and it is gospel-motivated. Too often in the church, we talked about this the past two weeks, in home gathering and on Sunday, there is a false dichotomy between law and grace. You cannot jump to either side of the fence and say, yes, this is right. It is both and. God's law is perfect. It is revelatory of who he is. But the gospel is not just plan B. It's the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is that fulfillment. And so the law is not anti-gospel. It is not opposite of the gospel. It's not even just part of the gospel. The law is gospel-powered and motivated from the beginning of time to now. A life conforming to the gospel will conform to God's law. And this is the foundation for Paul's later teaching on aspects of the Christian lifestyle. If you can't grasp this part of what Paul's trying to say in chapter 1, Two, three, and four will not make sense to you. 
when he goes on to talk about what the Christian life should look like, it's based out of this. Someone whose life is conforming to the gospel will conform to the law. And so the gospel is glorious because it reveals God's glory, namely his attributes. If you're looking at the gospel, what is it, what, why is verse 11 important? Well, because we're revealing God's glory in the gospel. And we're looking at his attributes. And one of his attributes of God is, is holiness. And that involves a hatred of sin. Another attribute of God is his justice. And that demands punishment when his law is violated. And so any gospel that ignores the law and sin is not the true gospel, since it does not reflect God's attributes. If we withhold any part of the gospel because of the law, because of our sin, because of our ignorance, whatever it may be, it is anti-gospel because it's anti-God. It's saying something false about who he is. That's why precision is important. The problem is, is if we don't discover who he is, if we're not caring about who his, what his attributes are and whether or not the things that we say reflect who he is or not, I think Jesus would say himself in John chapter 8, verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And so which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? For whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. The law exposes sinners. I hope you have a clear picture of where you might lie in the spectrum right now. But I have great news. It doesn't just expose. The glorious gospel of grace is that Christ's mercy saves sinners. Christ's mercy saves sinners. He goes on in chapter, or verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If you're following the text, the reference to the gospel in verse, uh, verse 11 enables Paul to begin developing this theme in two distinct ways. Paul's still formulating a big argument, all right? We're only in like part two of it. All right, we just finished part two. We're in part three now. 
right, so just, just track through his entire thought here. His reference in verse 11 allows him to start beginning to develop this theme of the gospel in two distinct ways. First is in showing how the gospel had been entrusted to him, Paul reveals his position as an apostle who has the authority, first of all, to correct and admonish them. So the fact that Paul is authoritative in what he has to say about the gospel is important. And he establishes that not just for, not for Timothy's sake. Timothy knows that. His letter is written to Timothy and the Ephesians, all right? This is his second letter. He's already written a letter to the Ephesians. And so he, he is able to kind of establish his authority. The second part that uh, he's able to develop the theme is that he shows how the gospel had changed his own life. And so we go into autobiographical mode, and we see how it lifts him from the depths of sin to know the heights of Christ's mercy and love. So what I want you to do as we move through this and, and talk about what is the gospel, as we talk about Paul's uh, experience here, I want you to observe the contrast between the response of the teaching to the false teachers. So the false teachers teaching in it in what? Sterile discussions, arguments even. That was the result of their teaching. But then look at the response of the gospel leading to worship and praise of God. It contrasts the glory of the true gospel with the emptiness of false doctrine. At the end of false doctrine, vain discussion. And we're done. As we would understand it, shipwreck and death. But at the end of the discussion of the gospel, what do we find? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It ends in doxology. So just like as we looked at with sin, we're going to look at grace now. I want you to see several distinct things that Paul's drawing out. All right, We're going to move through these verses almost word for word. We look at verse 12, the source of the grace. So grace, we could define, if we wanted to today, as God's loving forgiveness, by which he grants exemption from judgment and the promise of temporal and eternal blessing to guilty and condemned sinners freely without any worthiness on their part and based on nothing that they have done or failed to do. If you're writing that down, I'm sorry. You're going to have to get it from me afterwards. <laughs> I know how frustrating that is. That's, that's grace. Unmerited favor. Right? I mean, that's a two-word one. It's nothing that we've done or even failed to do that gets us grace. He just gives it to us. Paul directs his thanks from this grace to Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he's the source of that grace. In Greek, literally, it's saying, grateful am I to Christ Jesus, my Lord. Grateful am I to Christ Jesus, my Lord, because he's the source of the grace. Paul was conscious of the work of grace in his own life. I want to read, from you, or read for you 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. Listen to what he writes about himself. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But it wasn't even I, it was the grace of God that is in me. Paul is incredibly conscious of the work of grace in his life. To the Ephesians, the same church of Timothy, so to these people already, he's told them, to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Paul understands four aspects of God's grace in his life. The first is Christ's electing grace. 
Paul was ever conscious of God's choice of him. You see that? He judged me faithful. Paul was conscious of God's choice of him both for salvation and apostleship. Paul was the one that he showed up to on the road. Paul didn't ask for that. Saul at the time. In fact, he would have thrown a rock at him if he had the opportunity. God chose him. We see this in numerous other places. In Acts chapter 22, chapter 26, Romans verse, or chapter 1, verse 5, Titus chapter 2, 11, and Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He's incredibly conscious of God's choice of him. The second thing is we see enabling grace. Through God's grace, Paul was strengthened. God not only graciously elected him to salvation, but also graciously gave him the strength. The third thing is entrusting grace. God considered him faithful or trustworthy. And it was grace that made Paul so. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Through God's grace, Paul was a faithful steward of the ministry entrusted to him. He doesn't take credit for what he's done. He immediately gives that back to Christ. Part of his thankfulness is that he was given strength. And the final one is employing grace. There's employing grace that put him into service. That's where we get our word deacons, diaconia, from service. It refers to lowly, humble service. People who wait on tables, take care of widows. That's selfless service. His humble spirit was reflected in his statement. He says, I bear on my body the brown marks of Jesus in Galatians chapter 6. And then we see it again in his desire to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in Philippians chapter 3. You see repeatedly in Paul the words of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. And they were proven true again and again in Paul's life. How do you see the evidence of the grace of God in your life? Whether believer or unbeliever, Today, I think you can see the grace of God in your life. We have what we would call common grace. It's grace that God gives to all mankind. And we have uh, special grace that's given to people who are believers. Things that God does intentionally, specifically, for believers. How do you see the grace of God at work in your life? Do you see him choosing you? Do you see him enabling you and, and, and strengthening you? Do you see him trusting you with his word? Whether it be in your family or at your workplace or at your school. Do you see him leading you in selfless service? Are you becoming less and him becoming more? These graces should be obvious and evident in our lives as believers. I think back now a week and a half ago when we were at the hospital um, with Avery. I uh, have had a sick feeling in the back of my head for uh, the past several months that um, the reason God's not allowed our first house to go through to, uh, to closing was that I may lose my wife in childbirth, and she's the one that pays for our house. And uh, th that didn't happen, but uh, everything went, pardon me for using this word, easy. Um, <laughs> it was almost textbook, right? And we, we have Avery in our arms, and then we go to bed that night, just like we did with Adeline. Um, wake up the next morning wondering why she never, you know, woke us up. 
except that didn't happen this time. At 4 o'clock uh, at night, she would argue in the morning, 4 o'clock is, is nighttime. Um, <laughs> nurse taps me on the shoulder and says, you need to come with me. And so I get up and scramble and follow her, and uh, Avery is under the, the warmer light, and uh, the nurse has told me that she wasn't breathing and that she's incredibly cold. And so where's my brain go? Not my wife, but my child. Um, part of the ignorance of uh, medical processes may have led me to believe that the situation may have been more dire than it was. Nonetheless, it was incredibly um, awful, feeling like you can't do anything for your child. Uh, one of the, I've said forever, the, uh, I think the only thing that would pull me away from my faith is the loss of my wife or child. And uh, here I am face to face with a child who wasn't breathing for a little while and one that is uh, at a very, very low temperature. And so I'm standing there, and I can't do anything. Can't even pick her up. Um, can't do anything. Justice want me to talk to her, and I, I, I can't even talk. And in that moment, who are you? What does grace look like in your life in that moment? What doctrine do you cling to? What words come to mind? Can you say, my grace is sufficient for you? Can you say, Father, I know you're in control of everything. Father, I know that if you choose to take her away, that's okay. Can you say words like, Father, I know that you love this child more than I do. Father, I know that you care for my wife more than I do. Can you sing the words, all I have is Christ, hallelujah? It's in those moments that we understand what the grace of God in our life looks like or does not look like. These are the times in our life when we understand whether or not we are being conformed to his death and the power of his resurrection and our fellowshipping with him in his sufferings or whether we are living for ourselves. And so having seen not just our sin and the source of grace itself, these things have to show us the need for grace. I needed grace in that moment. The grace of God was especially vivid in Paul's mind because of his past. As a great sinner, he needed great grace. He says himself, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul had even forced other people to blaspheme. He's one of these people in ISIS that tell you to renounce your faith or they will cut your head off. Cuts, cuts a tentative word, Saul. He was a violent aggressor. He had no normal concern for human kindness. To see others humiliated or suffering brings him pleasure. That's the kind of person that Saul of Tarsus was. He was a sadist. And so it's no wonder that the early church had a hard time accepting him. Ananias was like, what are you doing, God? He has explicit orders in his hand to take us all to Jerusalem. 
Remembering what he had been delivered from helped Paul to maintain a humble and grateful attitude. And so we sing even today, Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus is ready and he stands to save you. He's full of pity, love, and power. So we see the power of grace in verse 13, the second half. He says, and yet I was shown mercy. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We need to understand the difference first between mercy and grace, all right? If we're talking about the glorious gospel of grace, we can't just simply think about mercy. We need to understand that mercy differs from grace and that grace removes guilt. Mercy takes away the misery caused by sin. Paul received the undeserved relief of misery that accompanies saving grace. And so how could so vile a sinner as Paul receive mercy? Because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. He was no hardened apostate, all right? He wasn't rejecting the full light of God's revelation. He was not like the Pharisees who understood Christ's teaching and power but rejected him. He did not understand the ramifications of his actions. Sinning willfully after having the truth can result in permanent judgment. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, 26-27. He was certainly responsible for his sin. And in fact, he was the foremost of sinners, but he received forgiveness because he did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Acts 26, 19. When faced with the truth, he believed it. He didn't throw a rock at the vision of Christ. He listened, he believed, he was saved. Verse 4 says, let not conscience uh, of come ye sinners. It says, let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requires of you is to feel your need for him. And so the chorus says, come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry or if you delay until you're better, you'll never come at all. We can't fix ourselves first. You have to come to him as you are. The power of grace can overtake the greatest sinner. And so we see the measure of grace in verse 14. Paul likes to use this word more than. We would translate it to uber. I would like to say that it's uber, right? That's my word. He likes to use this word uber to intensify them. So instead of just being abundant grace, it's more than abundant grace. I received more than abundant grace. Grace. He uses this to intensify them. And so what he's trying to say is that God's grace is greater than man's sin, and it's sufficient to meet all of our needs. And so with superabundant, as we would say, grace comes faith and love. It's not just that you get grace. Grace does something to the believer. It brings them what? Faith and love. Verse 14, a true Christian is marked by continuing faith and love. God's grace is so abundant that it includes not only salvation, but the faith and love that accompany it. So it's kind of like a terrible infomercial. Buy now, and you'll also get this. Get grace now, and you'll also get this. It naturally follows. It's part of the package. And so we finally, and most importantly, we arrive at the ultimate part of the gospel. What's the purpose of grace? Verse 15 and 16. Let's walk through these words. Ready? Christ. He is the anointed king who came to redeem and became the earthly Jesus at the incarnation. He came into the world implies not only his incarnation, his flesh, but his preexistence. 
He was before anything else. And so the world, he comes to the world, refers to the world of humanity, blind, lost, condemned to hell because of its hostility to God. We are all rebels against God, enemies of the cross. John chapter 12, it says that God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And so Christ's purpose in coming into this fallen world was to save sinners. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel himself tells Joseph that it is he, Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. In Luke 19, 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man, myself, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so to save is to deliver from death and darkness, from sin, hell, and judgment. That's the gospel. Sinners was a term used by the Jews to describe Gentiles, but our Lord used it to refer to all of fallen mankind. It denotes man's constant violation of God's law. Men are sinners by nature. That's the gospel. You think Platt came up with it? He stole it from Paul. (laughs) He lays it out here in 15 and 16. Paul saw himself as the foremost of all these sinners. And for that reason, Paul found mercy. Understand uh, some application for us. God didn't save Paul to get him out of hell or even into heaven. He he didn't even save him to preach the gospel or write the epistles. Someone else could have done that. It was God that wrote him anyways. The purpose of salvation, whether it be Paul's or ours, is to display the grace of God, the power of God, and the patience of God. And it's ultimately to produce a true worshiper of God. Sinners being saved is for his glory primarily. Our benefit is merely secondary. And so what Paul wants us to see is that if the Lord was patient with the worst of sinners, no one is beyond the reach of his grace. No one is beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so himself, as he says at the end of 16, as an example, he is. For those who would believe in him for eternal life, Paul was a living proof that God can save any sinner. So in Paul's words, he was the super sinner that got super grace. Jesus takes his mission seriously to save sinners. And so my question then for us today is, what's your mission? Don't, don't tell me Matthew 28. That's what it should be. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all these commands that I've given you that they may live in obedience to them. That should be our mission. What is your mission? Jesus came to save sinners. Are we doing that? Verse 17, the response to grace. This will lead us into our final verses. So Paul, having begun with thanksgiving, he closes with doxology. He says that Jesus is eternal, or God is eternal of the ages. It echoes the Judaism uh, view, uh, their view that all of time is broken up into two ages, the present age and the age to come. And God is of the ages. He's eternal. God had no beginning and will have no end. He exists outside of time, even though he acts inside of it. He's immortal, imperishable, incorruptible. He will never know death, decay, or loss of strength. He's invisible and therefore only knowable through his self-revelation. Thank God that he revealed himself to us. He's the only God, and so he alone is worthy of all honor and glory forever and ever. The only response to grace is worship. 
we'll be singing later, once we were bound by the chains of darkness, locked in sin's embrace, and once we were far from the love of Jesus and we are lost in hopelessness, but darkness fell. And on the cross hung Emmanuel. His blood was spilt to rescue the guilty ones. And so sing, my soul. Adore and wonder, marvel at the Savior's grace and His mercy. See our great Redeemer, humbly clothed in death and now robed in victory. And so as we sang earlier, glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God forever. It's okay to be repetitive sometimes. The glorious gospel of grace should lead us to sing, to praise, to worship, to doxology. And so some application for us. As a Christian, I think it's easy uh, to become over-familiar with the gospel so that it no longer excites us. It no longer causes us to delight in the Lord. Yet the way that Paul explains things in the autobiographical section is meant to be an example so that we will also be amazed and staggered by the overflowing abundance, the superabundance of the grace of Jesus Christ and his unlimited patience. Any versions of Christianity which fail to excite us about the cross of Christ and which do not lead our hearts inexorably towards worship of God must be suspect. Are you preaching the gospel to yourself daily? Finally, God's church must fight the good fight. So in light of the gospel, all that, (laughs) what do we do? What do we do with it now? Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. We talked about the last half of that earlier. So what do we do with the gospel? Our Lord Jesus Christ has called us to an abundant life of love, of peace, joy, and communion with Him. However, there's another side that doesn't often make it into our Christian evangelism, and especially not our tracks. The Christian life is warfare. As believers enter into a lifelong fight against the evil of this world and the evil of, our own, of their own sinful human flesh, so if you're not a believer today, I'm calling you to the gospel. We are all guilty. We are all sinners. We have to respond to that grace that's available. But I'm not just calling you to the gospel. I'm calling you to warfare. Christian life is warfare, and I would do this entire sermon of misjustice if I didn't end with this. So we're, we're going to move quickly through it, so hang with me for a couple more minutes. I like what John MacArthur says about warfare. He says this, Sadly, much of the contemporary church seems to have missed that reality, speaking of warfare. Many have heard only the gospel of easy believism and cheap grace. They have an inadequate concept of the spiritual struggle involved in loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Such people often magnify the petty temporal annoyances of everyday life 
until they seem like trials of epic proportions. Hashtag first world problems. Right? I did it today before I preached. The first one I saw was somebody drove an hour to Starbucks for pumpkin pie latte, and they were out of pumpkin pie. First world problems. Right? Just saying. He goes on to say, I love this. Frankly, that is as absurd as a soldier in the midst of a raging firefight complaining about the dirt on his uniform. That's the American church, though. That's the American church. It's something that we fight every time we go to the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And we try. I, I've been there. I've been, I've been there once. I've been to Costa Rica. And I've been to several other places. And, and I know what to expect when I get there. It's, it's totally different culture. Totally different everything. And I, I know that in my head, but when I get there, I, I find myself just, ah, I need Wi-Fi, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it just, it's like a deep yearning from within you. Um, and so you see McDonald's in the horizon, and you're like, home. And you get there, and you see McPinto in Costa Rica. And you're like, McPinto, <laughs> I'll try that. Let's explore. So, I mean, that, that's what it's like, though. We get there, and we're just completely not getting the idea. A soldier in a raging firefight is in the dirt. They're hurling bullets the other way. You're not complaining about having dirt on your uniform. Paul was no stranger to the reality of spiritual warfare. Not only did he battle his flesh, but he also had to continually engage the world in conflict. He was relentlessly assaulted by Satan, as his mention of the messenger of Satan sent to beat him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 indicates. Satanic opposition also kept him from visiting the Thessalonians. And yet he now calls Timothy to suit up and fight the good fight or noble fight against Satan. Timothy, it's time to go, bro. You need to suit up and we're going to fight this fight. Like all those in the ministry, Timothy was called to an unceasing spiritual warfare. And that fight demands equipped, trained, and devoted soldiers. So what's the gospel of grace? Sinners can be saved. But we've got to go fight for other sinners. Understand that this is from Matt's uh, grandpa. He, he told us, and it's rung true uh, in the five years of ministry that we've been here, that the role of troublemaker in the church is never vacant. The whole of troublemaker in the church is never vacant. Be aware that you don't slip into that hole. Fight the good fight. Be a soldier ready, equipped, trained, and devoted to the warfare. So I think if we would be victorious, and this is what I want to bring us out with, we must understand how Satan is going to attack the church today. Why are we talking about this having just talked about the gospel? Because the gospel is the power to do this. And this is what we have to leave here today doing. So let's understand how Satan attacks the church today. Number one, Satan attacks the church by blinding the minds of unbelievers to the gospel and thereby keeping them away from the truth and the church. Satan can and does blind the minds of unbelievers. That's why Facebook exists. He accomplishes that through ignorance false religion, pride, lust, and the wickedness that results from his control over the world system. 
Satan is at power in the world today. We do a grave misjustice to him. We don't understand that. Well, I've got good news coming up on that in just a second. The second way that he attacks the church today is that he attempts to devastate those who are already believers to cripple them and destroy the credibility of their witness. Listen to this. I had forgotten about this in, 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 in Scripture, and this just blew me away. Jesus warns Peter in Luke chapter 22. I mean, we went through the entire gospel, right, over several weeks, months. Jesus warns Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan wanted to destroy Peter's faith, to shake him and make what was genuine in him blow away in the wind. Think about that. Everyone wants to walk with Jesus, right? What happens when Jesus turns to you and says, Rusty, understand, Satan has asked for permission to sift you like wheat. I like Peter. I like his response then when he writes his first letter. Chapter 5, verse 8 of 1 Peter, he exhorts us to be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's how Peter responds after being told by Jesus to look out. It's incredibly important to us. The third way, Satan attacks the church by attacking marriage and the family. Paul commands husbands and wives not to deprive each other of sexual relations so that Satan would not have any opportunity to tempt them. Just saying that's the best battle plan that I've ever heard. (laughs) Have sex with your spouse. It prevents temptation. Glory to God, hallelujah, right? It it does, though. It's so important to protect the family. Because sin has this tendency, and I'm going to use a bad word, I'm sorry. It starts with P. Cover your ears if you don't hear it. It pisses me off when sin makes me feel like I'm missing out on something. But that's what it does. Men, that's what it does with pornography. When you feel like you're missing out on something. How am I missing out on something when I've got my wife? I've got Christ. I've been giving everything that I could ever want and salvation. And I still feel like I'm missing out on something. We need to understand that strong marriages and families are a prerequisite to a healthy church and a witness, for leaders specifically. By attacking those institutions, Satan's weakening the church. He's being very successful at this. We have to protect our marriages. We not just have to protect our own marriages, but the marriages of each other. Are you asking the people that are close to you in your life, that are married to an opposite gender person, If they're having sex, uh, how far are we willing to go to protect this institution of marriage? Number four, Satan attacks the church through her leaders. Paul tells Timothy in chapter three that leaders must be well qualified for their positions. Otherwise, they may fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. There's no one in the church Satan would rather destroy than leaders. For when the shepherds are destroyed, the flock will scatter. We see this great success as well in the church wanted to skip this part (laughs) putting a target on my chest all anew you have to pray for us it's it's tough I'll leave it there 
Number five, Satan attacks the church through false religious systems. Liberal Christianity, cults, world religions, and humanism are a constant menace. And the leaders of those movements, like their evil master, can transform themselves into angels of light. They can be very charismatic. They can make very compelling arguments, but they're evil. The things taught in the name of biblical truth are sometimes frightening. And so the church faces a constant barrage of error, all of it ultimately spawned by Satan and his doctrines of demons. Chapter 4, verse 1. As Jesus said again back in John, you are of your father, the devil, and he has been a liar since the beginning. And so how do we defend ourselves? 2 Corinthians 10 tells us, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but had divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And Ephesians 6 lays out all the necessary armor, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet girded with readiness to share the gospel, the shield of faith. But what do we fight with? What are our weapons? Our sword is God's word and prayer at all times. Apart from that, all of our intellect, all of our ability, all of our skill, all of our ingenuity, they are all useless apart from the word of God and prayer. And so to bring us out, I'm going to sort of sing for you, I apologize. As Martin Luther wrote in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Listen to these. It says, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. But when we successfully fight the noble war by living in obedience to Scripture, then we can triumphantly sing this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, and one little word will fell him. The glorious gospel of grace is that Christ came to save sinners. The law exposes our sin. His grace saves us from that sin, but only if we respond to that gospel in repentance and in faith. What is your response today? Do you see your need to be saved from your sin? Do you understand the danger that sin has for us? We're going to sing one more song before we leave. It's called Sing My Soul. I sang part of it earlier for us. This is your opportunity to take all this theology that you've learned, this revelation of the gospel of Christ, and just like Paul, join him in singing praises to God. Let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll sing and dismiss. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for who you are. God, your gospel is amazing. This good news is just astonishing. And Father, as I have been reveling in it all week again, being able to speak the gospel to myself every day, fighting sin, mortifying it, putting it to death. And I thank you for the grace that enables me to do that. And Father, I pray for myself and for, for your people that we would cling to the gospel. As Matt said last week, we would make a straight line for it. And Father, that we will not deviate to the left or to the right, we will not wander, Father, for danger of shipwreck. 
But God, that we would stay true. And Father, that we would fight alongside you. We love you and we thank you for all that you're doing. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.